Summer is almost here. Don't you want to go to the beach with thicker, gorgeous, beautiful locks and everyone goes, hey, I love your hair. And you go, Nutrafol, baby. (laughs) You know, something along that lines. Well, take the first step to visibly thicker, healthier hair. For a limited time, Nutrafol is offering my listeners $10 off your first month subscription and free shipping when you go to Nutrafol.com and you enter the promo code TSFS. Find out why over 4,500 healthcare professionals and hairstylists recommend Nutrafol for healthier hair. I recommend it. I've been taking Nutrafol for years. It's how I got my hair back thicker and not falling out in chunks after I had KJ. Now it's your turn. Nutrafol has been on with me for years, and that's because you all continue to buy, and it really works. I love it. Now it's your turn to love it too. Nutrafol.com, spelled N-U-T-R-A-F-O-L.com with the promo code TSFS. That's Nutrafol.com with the promo code TSFS. Via Hemp, let's talk about it. Via Hemp offers THC and non-TH craft cannabis experiences. Now, I love a non-THC option when it comes to your overall wellness. I'm talking sleep aid, maybe anxiety if you have that. Well, that's where Via comes into play. And did you know even a non-THC option if you're doing fertility or IVF can be helpful? Look into that. Well, Via is incredible. You got to be 21 plus. You can get 15% off with my exclusive code TSFS when you go to ViaHemp, V-I-I-A, hemp.com. They have all kinds of lifestyle products. And like I said, the best part is with the THC or without, so you don't have the buzzy buzzy. Don't you love my cannabis lingo? I mean, the buzzy buzzy. Anyway, I'm unique. What can I I say, look, order now. You're going to love Via Hemp. Use the code TSFS to receive 15% off and a one-time free sample of their award-winning gummies, 21 plus. That's viahemp.com and use the code TSFS at checkout. Support the show. Tell them I sent you and enhance your everyday life with Via Hemp. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey? (sighs) Well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. She's an economist and an author named Emily Oster. Now, I found her because my dear friend Tia, who just had her son in July, said, you have to read the book Expecting Better. I'm going to send it to you. And I was like, okay, you know, and I I picked it up and it was basically like everything that you've been told about pregnancy is false eating deli meats, drinking alcohol, that our fertility declines after 35. And the book essentially says, and here's the research to prove it. So I was like, what? 
Okay, I have got to read this book. I was hooked. I could not stop. I read the I read the entire book, I would say like in a weekend. And I found it after having a molar pregnancy miscarriage to be very, very comforting because in the book, one of the biggest things that we're going to talk about this is we're all told, all right, after 35, your fertility declines. But what do the numbers really say? You should be very optimistic about this. Also with pregnancies and then how many pregnancies come to term and are healthy and babies live. The numbers are very, very interesting. And the same goes for drinking. I'm going to be honest with you. The drinking part is really hard for me to wrap my head around. I think because in this country, we're just, you know, if you see a pregnant woman drinking, it's like, you just can't help but judge her. And Emily actually shows the research and the data in countries outside the United States where women do have not one, but two or three glasses of wine a week. And it's actually has very, it doesn't have an impact on the child. She'll get into it in the research. Believe me, that one was hard for me to to take too. Um, She has a couple of books out, Expecting Better, Crib Sheet, and then she's also coming out with a brand new book that you can pre-order called The Family Firm, and it's data-driven guide to better decision-making for kids in their um, later ages, making in the early school years. I'm sorry. So it's a data-driven guide to better decision-making in the early school years. That book is coming out. She has three total. She is super fascinating. She's also on every platform, Twitter and Instagram, and you should definitely check out her Twitter. She actually breaks down the research and science of why kids should be back in school and why schools are actually very safe um, with COVID. And the transmission rate is extremely low. So look, she's, she's amazing. I hope you enjoyed this interview. I couldn't get enough of her, and I loved the book, Expecting Better. If you know a mom... I think it's a very comforting book when you actually look at the science and research. I want to thank two sponsors, and then we'll get to Emily. ShipStation, you guys know our newest sponsor is ShipStation, and I would love for you to use them and use my code TSFS. Every time you do that, I get more sponsors, and it supports this podcast, so I can keep giving you some free episodes as well as our Patreon. ShipStation is amazing. If you have a small business, you started one, maybe you're selling jewelry, masks, all that fun stuff over the pandemic, well, you need to be shipping your orders and saving yourself money. That's where ShipStation comes in. They ship with any carrier, access discounted shipping rates, automate just about any shipping task. You'll spend a lot less time on shipping and a lot more time on growing your business. No matter where you're selling, Amazon, Etsy, your own website, ShipStation funnels all of your orders into one simple interface that can manage from anywhere, even your cell phone. You'll even get access to amazing discounts with major carriers, including UPS, FedEx, and USPS. Use my code TSFS to get a 60-day free trial. That's two months for free, no hassle, stress-free shipping. Sign me up. Just go to ShipStation.com, click on the microphone at the top of the page, and type in TSFS. That's ShipStation.com. Enter offer code TSFS and make ship happen. And if you don't have a small business, but you know someone that does, maybe it's time for them to switch over. Also, love my guys at RNG Insurance. If you need insurance, we all do. Car insurance, home insurance, renter's insurance, life insurance. God damn it. We all need insurance. Uh, My guy, David Gorman, I love. Dan and I saved over $20 a month when we switched and went with a carrier that David Gorman works with nationwide. He's awesome. 
so not only that, he's getting ready to do our renter's insurance, redo that, and also a life insurance policy for me because you know I'm going to be a mama. He is unbelievable. They work with every background. They're also um, very Hispanic and um, open, you know, to everybody, which I really, really love. And they have a huge Hispanic um, employee group as well as clients. So that's really important to me to work with a diverse group. You can reach out to David Gorman at R and A-N-D-G insurance.com on the website, make a free consultation. They can save you money. How do they do that? Well, they ha- they're not with just one carrier. It's not like State Farm where you only get one quote. No, they shop you around to many. They're in 30 states nationwide. So wherever you're listening to us, take advantage and go to rnginsurance.com. All right, here is Emily Oster. She's an author and a professor at Brown. Um, this woman, I, I am like freaking out. I told you, I, I said to Emily, I said, you know, you're a professor, you teach, you're an economist, but you're also like a rock star to me. Like I, my husband and I are huge fans. Well, thank you. That's so nice. I, that makes me really happy. You're like the Ariana Grande of parenting in my world. You I like know? of economics. I like to think of myself as the Ariana Grande of economics. Yeah. No, it's a good. It's a good job. Perfect match. Uh, Emily Oster is with us today. She is the author of a book called "Why the Conventional Pregnancy Wisdom Is Wrong and What You Really Need to Know Expecting Better." Now, that's actually one of three books because we're going to talk about your latest book too. The other book is Crib Sheet, which is kind of a guide to parenting from basically like birth to preschool, correct? Yeah, it's like sort of ends around the age of three. Ends around the age of three. And I was telling you before we started, a friend of mine, a girlfriend of mine said, you've got to read this book because, you know, when you get pregnant, and of course, everybody that listens to my show knows my whole molar pregnancy journey. And I went through, it was crazy. I ended up getting this gestational troblastic disease and cancer, which like, happens to, you know, less than 1%. So <laughs> I can be in your teeny little study. It's very <laughs> special. Very special. Um, and she said, you know, I think this book will actually kind of calm your nerves. And I picked it up and I couldn't, I, I read it over a week and I couldn't stop. You cover everything in here from things like, you know, when they tell you obviously not to drink, not to eat deli meats. What are the actual numbers of miscarriage? What's the science behind getting chromosomal testing? And that's just some of the amazing wisdom in here. That's so nice. I'm so, I'm really happy that it helped. That's like, that is the best thing for me. Well, tell me this. Okay. So this was your first book, Big Success. How did you, and I I sort of know this, but for the audience, what, what was the catalyst as an economist to write this book, Expecting Better? So it was it was really that I got pregnant and you sort of probably feel that a little bit in the book. I sort of got pregnant and I didn't I couldn't find the books that I wanted. I couldn't find the answers that I wanted. And I just started doing this research on my own. And then I started writing it and then I started talking to my friends about it and they were like, oh, that's great. I would have liked that to have that. And then it just kind of went from there. Well, let's talk about two examples, because I think these are big ones that you hear when you're pregnant a lot throughout your pregnancy. One is um, gaining weight, you know? And I actually don't, I I like that they kind of track my weight. It doesn't psychologically mess with me, but I know for a lot of women, it's very hard to hear, like, are you gaining too much? And you actually say in the book, gaining, you know, too much weight might be better than gaining too little. Tell me about the science and research. Why is that? So I, it's a good example because I think a lot of the stuff in the book, I try to sort of help people understand, well, why would you care about how much weight you gained or not? Like, why are they even 
like, let's start with like, why are they even figuring this out? And I think the, the answer there is that if you gain a, a lot more that your baby's weight is going to depend on how much weight you gain, at least to some, to some extent. So if you gain more weight than expected, your baby is more likely to be very big. Uh, and if you gain less weight than you, than you should, then your baby is more likely to be very small. Uh, and once you understand that, then you can sort of say, okay, well, would you like, which of those things is, is worse? Like how big a deal is it and which of them is a bigger deal? And it, you know, it turns out that, you know, having a very large baby makes childbirth a little harder, um, on average. Uh, but, uh, having, having a very small baby also has some pretty significant issues and probably more significant issues. So, you know, in the end, I sort of say, look, if you want to take into account not only the probability of these things happening, but also how bad they are, you actually should probably be sort of more worried if you're kind of on the on the lower end of the scale below the recommended than if you're on the upper end sort of above recommended scale. I, I find that right there like check number one for buying the book. You know, it's like because they're no, and I have a great team of OBGYNs and they're they they basically say, you know, look, the more weight you gain, it's gonna be harder at times to give birth. You know, if if you're way above the 30, you know, pounds that it's gonna make your birth experience, it could anyway, just, you know, more fatiguing. So um, but you know what I found was great? And you know what? Even reading your research, I have to say, because I've thought about having a glass of wine in, you know, while pregnant. And I think for me, emotionally, like there's just, you know, like going through everything I went through. It's like, I, I don't think I can wrap my head around it. But I loved your research because you actually say that, especially in European countries, women do have a glass of wine a week, or I think you can even have more than that, according to your research. Um, and actually, there is very low impact on babies. Is that right? Tell me, I don't, you're the yeah. expert. <laughs> yeah, no. So I sort of go through, I think, you know, we, we sort of all know that drinking a lot, drinking a lot at a time, like that is like very dangerous during pregnancy and is something that should be avoided. But, you know, I think there's a, there's a question of, you know, is it okay to occasionally have a glass of wine a couple of times a week, which is much more common outside of, of the US. Um, and so, you know, we can actually dig into the data and look particularly at data that comes out of Europe, where we see more of this behavior that's kind of just a little bit sometimes. Um, and there you really don't see any evidence of negative impacts on the fetus and, you know, or on the on the baby. And actually, a lot of those studies are really large, um, you know, hundreds of thousands of people kind of all together. So it's not just a, a few, it's not just a few data points. So why here in the U.S. do they really pound that into you that like, do not drink? So, I mean, it's, it's complicated because I think that there's a, there is a, you know, generally the U.S. has a different relationship with alcohol than most of Europe. Uh, and I think that there, there is a lot of concern in the U.S. that if you tell people they can have a little bit, that they will have a lot. Um, and I don't know if that's, I don't think that that's true, but at any rate, I think that's the, that's the concern. I, I also think, you know, because of some of the sort of way that society is structured here, actually, we, we do have, uh, we do have 
cases in which people don't know that they're pregnant and then they dr they drink a lot and that can be very damaging. And so I think there's this sort of tension in the policy space about how do we avoid having people drink too much, which has led us to this messaging, which I think isn't really in line with kind of what we see out of the data. Well, and it's almost like OBGYNs, you know, they do have a difficult gig in the sense of you're seeing a wide variety of women, right? Where some, if, you know, if you said to them, okay, it's okay to have a glass of wine or two a week, or you know that they would stand by that. They'd probably have a glass. Maybe they wouldn't. They have an easy flow with alcohol. Then, you know, you're going to have other patients that, like you said, that might be a green light to drink too much. And then yeah. we know, I think it was, I, I'm not sure what the tipping point is, but essentially, you know, over four drinks or over, you know, two ounces or something of alcohol in a sitting, you are essentially putting your baby in danger. Yeah, exactly. And I, you know, I think that that's, um, I think that the messaging is complicated. And part of, we sort of see that reflected in what OBs say they tell their patients, because we definitely, you know, you see something like half of OBs will say in surveys that they tell their patients that occasional alcohol consumption is, is okay. I think that can be confusing for patients. And part of the reason to sort of dig into the data and the literature is to say, look, here is, you know, here is really what we know. And this is why maybe what you're hearing is a little bit confusing. And here's kind of how you can understand it all. Um, I mean, I could go chapter by chapter in this book, but you also talk about miscarriage. Tell me about this. A lot of women that listen to my show are either trying to get pregnant, maybe trying to have a second child, have had miscarriages. What is the data about miscarriages? We know for sure it's pretty high, right? It's like one in four of us are going to have one. Uh, it's very, very common in that first essentially trimester. Yeah. So, you know, depending a little bit on kind of when you find out something like a quarter, maybe a half of, of pregnancies uh, ended miscarriage. Of course, most many of those you wouldn't even know you were pregnant. They're so the miscarriage would be so early. But even among, you know, miscarriages among pregnancies that are detected, the, the miscarriage rates are very high early on. And I don't know, I guess part of what I sort of feel when we talk about this is like it, it's so because nobody talks about it, you never it, it can feel very isolating and alone. And then if you have a miscarriage, you tell people, I'd be like, oh yeah, I had like, yeah, I had, I, you know, I had, yeah, I had one of those. And um, every, once you get on the path of trying to have a baby yeah. and you talk to women, it's like almost every Everybody. woman is had a miscarriage or something, you know, it, it's amazing. Yeah. And I think it's, it's, uh, it's a bit like this sort of after childbirth stuff where people don't talk about you know what happens to your vagina uh, after that. And oh, great. <laughs> they don't tell you. They don't tell you, but it's, it's, and then after when it happens, then you tied your friends. They're like, oh, yeah, let me tell you what happened to me. You're like, why didn't you tell me that before? I know. Well, actually, I'm in the process of hearing people's horror stories about, and, and, you know, you cover a chapter in Expecting Better about, you know, C sections, um, you know, epidural, no epidural, which, you did no epidural for your two babies, right? I did. You're yeah. a saint. I, I mean, uh, that's the only chapter that I was like, I'm I'm just doing the epidural. <laughs> I don't actually like this. This person's a crazy nut job. I, I don't have to listen to everything. I was like, I'm going to skip this chapter because I already know. But, but, but you know what I love about you? I mean, you're one of the most sane people on the internet right now because you actually say in the book, you trust the audience to make their own decisions. And we're in this like polarizing place of like, you have to listen to me or, you know, pick a side. And I, that's what I loved about the book. You're like, here's the hard and, you know, and at the end of every chapter, you give like the hard and true facts. And then you're like, you make up, you know, your mind. That's it. I appreciate that. So I'm I totally comfortable with you having an epidural. Go for I'm it. I'm like, I gotta have, have, your, have your 
have your epidural. Emily, you're amazing. But you know what else was also reassuring? Because we hear this so much as women work on their careers. You actually say the science is there isn't a hard and true 35-year age cutoff of your fertility. To get it, tell me this because I think for women listening, this is huge because we're always told after 35, huge dip. It's, yeah. And it just doesn't show up there. So I think that there's, you know, of course, like the, the best time to get pregnant is when you're 16. Um, that's the easiest time you can get pregnant just like in a hot to anywhere, anywhere <laughs> you want. It's just constantly pregnant. That's what they tell you. You just like look around the wrong way. The guy on the football team pregnant. Um, <laughs> It's all downhill from there. But then, of course, it is true that like sort of fertility declines some over uh, over over age. But we've sort of had this idea that it's like 35, like 35 and 34, like somehow really different and really. And and, and it's not true. You know, there is a there is a, a decline, but there's no huge dip at, at 35. And actually, pregnancy rates, you know, are, are pretty similar sort of like can you get, but in the sort of early 30s and, and late 30s. And then, you know, and they also sort of they do dip, you know, as you get but, older. But they do. But then in the book, you actually actually say over the age of 40, 50% of women over the age of 40 trying, I think for six months, correct me if I'm getting it wrong, like, yeah, will could. still get pregnant. Yeah. So, I mean, you That's can, you huge. know, definitely like, yeah. The, yeah. That is like, I mean, I mean that because you really think, oh my God, 40, uh-oh, you know, things are really, really, I'm thinking in my mind, just from hearing all this, the things that you hear basically in media, you probably have like a 20% getting chance of getting pregnant, but you actually say the science is yeah. 50%. Tired than that. You that, get pregnant. That is, I mean, that's amazing. Wait, why do you think, okay, what is your whole philosophy though on why we don't hear more of this? Like, why is your book so shocking? <laughs> like, I don't I mean, I don't know. I think part of, um, you know, I sort of wondered about this at, at the time, like why, why doesn't this book, like why doesn't something like this exists and i think that you know they're I, I think somehow people sort of thought that maybe w women would not want to know all these data that like that somehow that like people don't like, like ladies wouldn't like numbers so much um but that ladies like typical. ladies like numbers ladies do they it, like numbers yeah we like the research we like this okay. that is what i love what okay when you were write, writing expecting better and then i want to talk about some of your parenting research and, and COVID and school openings. When you were writing Expecting Better, what was the biggest chapter that surprised you? What was like something that you were like, oh my God, I can't, I never knew that. Hmm. Um, I think I'm, I'm trying to see my, my kids are like old now. So I'm trying to like think back to what it was like. I don't know. Um, you know, I think probably the biggest surprise just in terms of the difference between like what's recommended and what is true was was bed rest. So, you know, a lot of women that I knew uh, were put on bed rest for some pregnancy complication. It turns out there's basically no pregnancy complication for which that's a good idea. Okay, that was shocking in the book because you also hear about that, like, oh, you should, I mean, some women do, like, oh, you should rest, rest, rest. And you you say the data there is very small that you should, in fact, it's almost detrimental. Yeah, I think it is detrimental because, you know, you lose muscle tone, you lose time, you lose like all kinds of reasons why it's it's actually 
quite bad. Um, Now, you cover all women. I'm curious, when you were writing this book, did you think about doing a chapter or a book for women of color? Because I think one of the things we hear a lot about is, um, you know, Black women, higher mortality rates in hospitals. Um, You know, I I feel like there's a real heightened awareness around that. Was that something you, and I know this Expecting Better is, is kind of, you've written it several years ago. You've got two much more recent books. Um, any any plans to do that? Because I, I think your science would be great on that. So it's it's interesting. We've, we talked about this because I updated the book um, in the last you know year or so. And so there would be an updated version of this out in a couple in a couple of months. And we sort of talked about like how you know how much of that perspective do I want to to put in here? And I think that the truth is that I don't think I am the right person to write that book uh, as a white woman. Um, and so I think, you know, better to sort of there's a lot of like good writing on this and thinking on this by women of color. And I think amplifying that, which is something that I think we'll sort of try to do a bit around the the release of uh, of the, the updated version is probably a much um, I would rather do that than try to sort of me come in and say, you know, here is the experience of what it is to be a black woman uh, in a hospital, which I I have is not a lived experience that I have. No, I think that's actually a great that I didn't even think about that response, but I feel like that's a great way to look at it. And you're right. There are a lot of women of color in that space doing that research. Um, all right. Talk to me about your latest book project and also parenting. One of the things in in reading about you and reading your books, you actually say, because the next stage for me, my, my baby is due in two months, is have career, right? Like, okay, I'm thinking, I'm very fortunate right now with COVID. Everything I do is at home. So I'm like, I don't even really have to take maternity leave. I can kind of log in and here. Everybody knows, you know, so it's, it's, I'm in a good spot, but a lot of women are really torn. And you actually say that women should feel not so guilty because the science says if both parents go to work, your kid is going to be just as well off as if one stays home. How ironic. I love this. Got a new podcast for you to listen to. Yes, I do. It's the Dr. John Delani Show. Schman and I were actually playing a clip from Dr. John's podcast because he was doing the topic of are youth travel sports ruining families? Well, Dr. John Delani has over 20 years of sitting with families and dealing with hurting people and mental health issues. He has a PhD in counseling. Delani walks alongside real people as they navigate tough decisions. And this is actually something that I really enjoy about his show. It's caller driven. I I feel like I'm going to have to get a caller driven show, Dr. John. I love this. Anyway, listen to the Dr. John Delani show wherever you get your podcast, or you can follow the link in the description of this podcast episode. I always make it very, very easy to find my sponsors and people that I partner with. So start downloading and listening today to the Dr. John Delani podcast. Enjoy. 10 years ago, I lost 60 pounds mindful eating, and today I have kept the weight off. I never think about food. I never count calories. Honey, I don't even use one of those darn trackers or apps. I live with food freedom, and I want that for you if you are ready and you want it. And that's where My Optimal Body comes into play. Visit MyOptimalBody.com to request an appointment, and be sure to let them know that the Sarah Fraser Show sent you so you can qualify for a free personalized assessment plus a bonus free 30-day supply 
of their gut repair product when you sign up for a customized plan. That is myoptimalbody.com to request an appointment. Why I wanted to partner with Dr. Applin is because he is a doctor that gets to the cellular and gut reason of why you can't lose weight and keep it off. They also work with your mental capacity as well. So many of us are emotional eaters. They address that and their clients see long-term success. If you are ready to lose weight, keep it off, and you don't want to do crazy Ozempic, myoptimalbody.com and tell them the Sarah Fraser Show sent you. Want your life back? Order Hungry Root. It's actually as simple as that. Truly, Hungry Root is the best meal kit service I have ever worked with because they have meals that take 12 minutes. Guys, if you are a busy mom like I am, KJ now just started swim lessons. And on the night that he has swim lessons, we're not home until six. I'm trying to make dinner, trying to get him rested and down for bedtime. When I see that number 12, and I know in 12 minutes I can have a healthy meal, I'm turned on. All right. You will be too. Hungry Roots website, so easy to use as well. You just go, you can type in a type of cuisine or if you like chicken, or you can do preset where you tell them you're vegetarian, keto, or you're a meat lover. Right now, get 40% off. My listeners are getting 40% off your first delivery and free veggies for life. Just go to HungryRoot.com slash TSFS and get 40% off your first delivery and get your free veggies. That's HungryRoot.com slash TSFS. Don't forget to use my link so they know who sent you and get 40% off right now and free veggies for life. The wait is over. That's right. Season five of The Kardashians is here. Just when you thought life couldn't get any faster, they're punching it up into overdrive. Chris, Courtney, Kim, Chloe, Kendall, and Kylie are back and continue to defy expectations in all their endeavors. So get ready to go behind the glitz and glamour of the most iconic family on television. The all-new season of The Kardashians premieres May 23rd, streaming on Hulu. Yeah. So, I mean, I talk in the, I sort of, there's kind of two pieces of that in the, in, in crib sheet. So one is sort of looking at specifically maternity leave and, you know, how, and, and highlighting that there is some value to some leave uh, at the, at the beginning that, you know, we see sort of the, the fact that the U S has no paid leave is uh, shameful and embarrassing. Um, and, you know, having some, some paid leave would be, would be good. But, you know, when we go sort of past like say four, four months, we're not seeing a lot of, we're not seeing differences really between the kids of parents who work and parents who don't work, which I think opens up and says, look, you know, you should make the choice that works for your, for your family, for your whole family. And, you know, that if you want to work, then you shouldn't feel like you are doing a bad thing for your kid. If you don't want to work, you shouldn't feel like you're doing a bad thing for your kid. And, and, you know, I think we often frame that choice in, well, what kind of parent do you want to be as opposed to sort of what kind of family life are we going to have and what's going to also like, what do I want to do? Right. Because you actually say too, it's very detrimental if you have some, a parent at home that really is unhappy, whether, you know, unhappy because they're not fulfilling their life in other ways aside from the kid. That is actually very stressful to a child too. Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, we, like your kids know when you're not happy and I know that because of COVID. Um, and you know, they, that if like, if, I think that that there's, you know, them seeing you invest in in yourself if that's the thing that you want to do and you know try to and and work I think that that um, that that's also that's also valuable. And then there are people who are like I like staying home is amazing and it's my dream and I love doing that and I think that that's also that's also great. 
And yeah. okay, I have two follow-ups for that. And then I want to talk about uh, COVID and school openings because that's so controversial right now. Um, but so how, what's the science for dads staying at home? Because in my household, you know, one of the things that I fell in love with my husband with is he always said, I, I really want to be a stay-at-home father. And I was like, okay, great. Because I want to pursue my entertainment career forever. So what do dads do well at home with the kids? I don't know. I, we Nobody knows. Oh. I mean, this is like part of what's so frustrating about this research is that it's so focused on like, does mom stay home? Does mom stay home? Like nobody even is like, it, it doesn't even occur to anyone. So one of the things I say at the start of that chapter is I find that whole, dis- this whole discussion is so gendered. It's like, are you going to be a stay at home mom? You know, and nobody's like, so, I, and I, I sort of say like, let's, let's instead ask what's the optimal allocation of parental, of adult work hours in the household? Mm. Which is sort of like takes away like, you know, maybe there's two moms, maybe there's two dads, maybe their dad is going to stay home. Like, look, we need to sort of step away from the idea that, you know, there is going to be a father and a mother and the father will go out to a full time job. And then the choice is, does the mother stay home or not into a place where it's like we got to figure out based on whatever parent adult configuration we've got, we had to figure out what is the right what is the right way to do it? Um, but we don't have any research because nobody is interested in dads. Really? So what do you, okay, wait, do you think in the next 10 years we're going to really, because yes. it seems like more dads are staying home. It's it's so interesting because I, you know, I am, uh, I am 40. I'll be 41 this weekend. Yes. Um, and <laughs> I will be too. My birthday is tomorrow. Amazing. My birthday's on Sunday. You're a Valentine's Day what? baby. I, I am. February so woman. Great. I knew, I knew I had we a connection with you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So, uh, you know, I, and, but when I talk to people who are sort of like a, like a decade behind me, who are kind of the people who are reading my books, who are having kids now, it's so, there is so much more gender equality in that group of people in sort of how they are thinking about the, you know, like who's going to work and, and, you know, paternity leave, you know, push like men who are like, yeah, it's really important to me that I'm off. You know, I want to take the, you know, I want to take my paternity leave, you know, my wife's going to go first, then I'm going to take leave after that. Or, you know, I'm going to cut down to four days a week. And it's, it's like so different. So, you know, I think for men who are kind of, I think for the, for the sort of 30 under 30 group, I I do think that we're going to see more kind of men taking over this uh, doing more in this space, having more equality. What about single women? You know, I feel like there's a big movement now for women in their mid to late thirties saying, you know what, I'm going to have a child on my own without, without a partner. Um, what do we, what do we know, um, about, is that just a more difficult road in general, like financially, emotionally, or is there any science there yet? So, I mean, I think that the, the, you know, the issue is that, of course, we have a lot of science that looks at, you know, single, you know, children of single, single parents. But the that group, uh, the the sort of group of like what we call single moms by choice is very different than the sort of broader swath of of kind of unmarried moms in, in the U.S. And so it's a little hard to separate out um, the kind of some of the issues that you see in in single parents from, you know, what would be true if you if you did this by choice in a sort of better resource environment. So I think our, our data on that is not very is not very good. Um, it's not very good. And doesn't it blow your mind? I mean, Europeans really know how to do it, don't they? I mean, the French. I mean, why are we so unsophisticated here? We're supposed to be like the superpower of the world, although you could argue that. But anyway, you know, why are we so 
bad because you know you see the French right I mean they give birth to like 700,000 babies a year the moms have a glass of wine the kid everybody's more relaxed what is it just because over the I don't know why is that we're just we don't value the family as much here yeah I mean I think in general our our sort of like social supports are poor here um you know it's not something that we do very that we do very well um you know, and I, yeah, I don't, I'm not really sure. I mean, the, there's a lot of cultural differences in how we, in how we approach this. And I think there's a sort of, there's a weird aspect of, of parenting where in the U.S. you're kind of simultaneously, we're not providing people any support, but also there's this pressure to do it like exactly right. Mm. right? So I sort of talk about this in the context of breastfeeding that it's like, you have to breastfeed all the time for like a year and a half because otherwise your kid's going to be a dum-dum. But also don't take your boobs out in public. It's like, well, it's like, you know, it's like, there's like, I, I don't know. I feel like at least if you're going to tell me I have to do it all the time, you should be comfortable with me doing it in public. Yes. Let me, there should be a room or, or not even a room, but a section like whip your boobies out. Literally just do it. And I think for me with the first kid, I was so anxious about doing, about, you know, nursing in, in public. It, be, it made it sort of harder to do. And one of the differences between, you know, the first and the second kid is I to mine, I just decided like, oh, you know, I'm just going to like do it, do it wherever. That made it a lot easier. <laughs> and and what is, is there like a big scientific difference with breastfeeding your kid? Because I mean, every once in a while too, you see these moms that breastfeed them until they're five, you know, so they will be geniuses. And I think, oh my God, you know, that's a long time I'm going to have to nurse this kid. I mean, what's the science with giving them formula or breast? Is there any real big difference? So n- basically no. So there are some small benefits to okay. nursing early on, um, you know, like some sort of digestive benefits in the first um, year, kind of like while they're while they're nursing. Um, but you know, those are fairly small and a lot of the stuff you hear like IQ, they'll be thinner later, they'll have superpowers. That's just, that is not supported in the data. Okay. This is why I love you. Um, all right, let's talk about COVID in schools. And then I want to talk about your new book too. Um, so right now it is across the country, you know, it is a huge debate and there's so many layers to it, whether you're talking about school unions and, you know, local government, all these things. But the reality is there are a lot of kids falling way behind because they are not in school due to COVID. And you actually advocate, I love following your Twitter, that kids need to go back to school, that the science of getting COVID in school for both teachers and the student is very, very low. Tell me about that. Like how, okay, when did this research start? What's your overall opinion? What do you think? Yeah, so, you know, one of the weird COVID projects I've been engaged in is is kind of collecting and collating data on um, on school spread in schools, COVID spread in schools. Uh, we have like a big dashboard. Um, it's kind of public that has probably, I think we have the largest national dashboard on this topic. Uh, and, you know, in, in general, between the data that we have and a lot of the other data that has come in, I think what we've seen over the course of the fall is, you know, it is possible to operate in-person schools safely. A lot of schools are doing that. Spread in schools seems to be extremely low, um, at, you know, particularly when kids are wearing masks um, and, you know, washing their hands and doing some basic stuff like that. And at the same time, we've really seen uh, the, the risks of not having kids in school. We've seen big learning losses, huge socio-emotional downsides. And so I think putting all that together, um, you know, more in-person schooling is a good idea. How do you think, I mean, I'm with you. You know, it's so sad to read about increased suicide rates in, in, you know, the state of Nevada and especially Las Vegas for these students that are out, you know, out of school. 
you're an economist, so I know you deal in facts, but what do you think, what are we going to look back, do you think, in a year or two on this? I mean, do you think kids are going to be way behind or they're resilient, they can catch up? You know, I think for, I was, I've been thinking about this. I think the learning losses are likely to be something that we can, um, that we can make up. And there's been a lot of good discussion already about, you know, how can we use the summer? How can we use next year? You know, how can we target tutoring to, you know, underserved kids to try to, to make up some of these losses? So I think those pieces, um, I am, um, more optimistic, I guess about, um, but, you know, I, I think that the, some of these sort of, emotional or, you know, support losses, uh, are, are really significant. And I think, you know, I'm not sure we're going to be able to make those up in the same, in the same way, you know, kids who basically have been totally isolated in in very difficult circumstances for an entire year, you know, that, that may be hard to, to recover. And do you think that it's, it's really comes down to like politics as far as why this is such a hot topic? It's, it's just become so political in different cities. That's kind of why, I mean, I know you got many factors, like I mentioned, the union, everything. So you think it's just politics that they can't move through to get through just to the science? Yeah, I think that's I think that's a piece of it. I mean, there's there's politics. I think there's fear. And I think we haven't done a great job because of some of the sort of pre-existing trust issues between some of the stakeholders here. It's been very hard to move past um move past some of the the fear. And, you know, I think it's worth noting uh, a lot of schools are open in the U.S. And there are a lot of places where kids have been in school, you know, in the district that I live in, you know, kids have been in school five days a week in person since September. Um, so, yeah. you know, it's it's been it's it's doable. It's something a lot of places have uh, have have done. Um, but, you know, it, it requires stakeholders to work together. And that uh, is tricky. That's hard. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Great. Tell me about your new book. It's called the family firm, a data driven guide to better decision-making in the early school years. What is the latest book about? So it's kind of like the, the next one in the series. So it's sort of about older, older kids and kind of managing family life with, uh, with the sort of logistics, um, and the questions that come up with, with older kids. Um, so it has a lot of data that's, you know, kind of reminiscent of the kinds of questions that I ask in the early books. So it's more stuff on parental work, some stuff on food, sleep, uh, school choices, tutoring, those kind of things. But there's also a big component here of kind of talking about how to organize decision making and how to uh, how to kind of structure your family, make decisions that structure your family life in a way that makes you happy. Uh, and so there's there's a kind of the first part of the book is all about uh, decision making and methods for decision making and and how to um, really how to sort of sit down and, and kind of deliberately think about the life you want to craft as your kids sort of move into that stage. And okay, when you say that, you mean like how much schoolwork they're going to do versus like sports versus family time? Like what's the kind of thing, the yeah. biggest factors? Yeah. So I think that those things are all there. I think sort of it's, it's, it's about saying, you know, like, do you, like, do you want to sit down for dinner every night at six? Is that something that, is that, is that something that's really important to you? Mm. Uh, and if that's something that's really important to you, if that's a really important priority for your family, that's going to dictate a lot of other things. Your kid will not be able to have hockey practice six, six nights a week uh, at six o'clock if you want to be eating dinner at that time. And so I think one of the things that happens in, in parenting sometimes is we, uh, we make individual decisions kind of a, like a little bit at a time uh, on the on the margin, we'd say, um, and they sort of 
end up in we end up in a situation that's different than we imagined at the beginning. And so some of the pitch in the new book is to say you want to really sit down and think about what are the important pieces you want to have in place and that's going to help you think about you know what how do you fit in the other the other pieces and sometimes that will mean you can't do those pieces because they go against the the things that are really core to to the life you want to have Emily what do you see overall with kids because the perception i think from the media is that kids raised now are um overwhelmed with anxiety whether it's to play sports competitively at a very young age or if it's to get into a certain school do you know it seems the perception and maybe this is not the actual reality is that kids are really under a lot of pressure. Is that true or really more families are kind of letting kids be kids? I think it's hard. I think it's hard to tell. I certainly have your, I have the same impression you do that sort of scheduling that people have the, have the sense of like schedule scheduled stuff has gone up. And I think that, that that's, um, that's right relative to when we were, to when we were kids. Um, but it's also, you know, I think it's it's also the case um, that some of that is sort of anecdotal and is is specific to particular uh, to to particular to particular groups. Um, so I don't know. Okay. Okay. Um, now, any research on? I'm getting ready to have a son, and I've already got his YouTube channel. Is there any child actor research on you know how you can fuck up your kid? Because like I. <laughs> I'm already ready to launch. I've got I'm this sorry, brilliant yeah. idea. Yeah. Have you done any? Because I really, I'm like, what is the tipping point where I can make him be a child actor? Because I know this YouTube show is going to take off, but yet not mess him up. I'm afraid the the research on that may be somewhat limited. Um, I don't think YouTube's been around long enough for us to see the long-term impacts oh. of starting your child's YouTube channel <laughs> at birth. Oh, okay. Um, well, you know, just a potential future project for you. Yeah, really. no, it's totally. We should we should have a study on that. That's kind of this is the kind of information that people need. I agree. I mean, you know, I mean, the internet is hot. TikTok is hot. I mean, what's what's this? Uh, you know, so hot. But are okay. Like last question though, are you going to dive into your latest book on like cell phone use and and in front of um you know machines? Because again, we hear like, oh my god, this is just destroying children. <laughs> What's the yeah. sound? What are you going to do with that? So the the there's a little bit of that in the in the third book. Um, you know, I think some of this is really some of these concerns people have about you know social media and cell phones really come up when your kids are when the kids sort of age into like high school and and kind of that phase. Um, and so, and I also, my, my oldest is only nine, so she doesn't have a cell phone yet. So, you know, I try to, I try to limit my writing to my own personal experience <laughs> as much as possible. No, it's awesome. It's awesome. Um, and it, when is the family firm book out? August. 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 Okay. Okay. But August, you can pre-order it now. We can pre-order now, probably on Amazon, every, yep. all the usual spots. All the usual spots. Um, you have a website too. Is it emilyoster.com? Uh, it's emilyastro.net, and I have a Substack, uh, which is called Parent Data. Okay, if you want to subscribe. I'm I'm just a huge fan. I, I think your books are amazing. I love the science. I find it so comforting. Um, any other projects you have coming up that you want to promote? I, you're a busy woman. No. I love seeing this you. Is this is it. This is this is it. Books and the newsletter and the COVID dashboard. That's enough. I'm good. And teaching at Brown. That's like and I think you. Yes, I also have my regular job. And your and your and your kids. All right. Thank you so much for being on the show. You're amazing. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. Thanks.